Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You can follow along on the bulletin or on your app on your phone. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I hope you were encouraged as I was just to hear your all's testimonies this morning from the Honduras team. That's beautiful. And sometimes we forget the obvious that love is what's most important. These three, faith, hope, and love, but the most important is love. And that was evident in the testimonies that were shared, how important that is. And that's what the overarching theme of this chapter is, is that knowledge puffs up. It inflates, but love builds up. It edifies. And love has to take uh, the preeminence. And and we'll see how this works out ethically in 1 Corinthians 8. But let's give attention to this difficult passage together. Now, concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagine that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food is really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and we're no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If, if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Speak to each of us individually and speak to us corporately as well. Lord, may we grow in love for you and for one another. May we bring glory to you uh, in all this. In Jesus' name, amen. So the passage, this passage is tough on multiple levels because first of all, there's a relevance issue, which it's easy for you to think when you read this, well, what in the world does this have to do with the world I'm living in? Nobody I'm around is praying to an idol before they eat meat in the world that I live in. So that's kind of be the first thing. And it's just kind of the relevance issue. I would say that when you think about like kosher food, for example, uh, what makes food kosher? And, you know, it's interesting, Lenny's not here, but Lenny's funeral over over at um, uh, Leisure World, uh, you know, Sam did a lot of preparing of the food, but it wasn't kosher. And they were upset, and they were kind of giving her a hard time, like, this food is not kosher. It's a Jewish funeral. And I felt bad for Sam because they were making her look bad. But then the, the way to fix it is just to have the rabbi pray for it, and it becomes kosher. Well, there was no rabbi there, but they found me. And I was the closest thing to a holy person. And so they asked me to bless the food. 
And so I thought, well, being the, the strong brother here, that I would give me an opportunity to pray in Jesus' name, that I prayed God's blessing over the food, and the lady that was complaining the most was eating the most pork. We thought that was, that was uh, really interesting. So, so there is relevance right off the bat, okay? So first of all, there, and, and I have been, there are some places in the world today where this is still a very real experience. Years ago, we, went, we sent a short-term team to London, and we went into a Sikh temple, went to different temples, and they would literally have food offered to an idol and they'd have the idol behind them and the food on a plate and then as you would leave the 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 temple there would be people out there and they're offering you fruit and offering you food that had already been served at that idol and they offered it to me when I came out and I discovered I am a weak brother I'm like that has been offered to an idol and I was like, eh, no thanks, no thanks. So in, in parts of the world, this is still a big deal, okay? So th- the first issue here is just kind of a relevance issue, but secondly, we're trying to figure out what was really going on here. What is Paul saying and what is Paul not saying? And if you read 1 Corinthians 8 and then you keep reading through 1 Corinthians 10, there's some difficult things going on here. Because in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 10, he says, If anybody sees you have knowledge eating in this idol's temple, will he not be encouraged of his conscience as weak to eat food offered to idols? So he's saying, you can go in that temple and eat the food, it seemed like he's saying. But then what about your weak brother when he sees that? And then you get over to chapter 10 of Corinthians, and he says, um, in verse 20 and 21, he says, um, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So in chapter 8, he seemed like he's, he's, he's saying you can go ahead, and go ahead and eat in the temple. And in chapter 10, he's saying, are you kidding me? This is, this is fellowship with demons. So the reality was this. In Corinth, there was no courtyard Marriott. There's no Ritz-Carlton. There's no Ruth Chris Steakhouse. There's no Panera Bread. There's no Chick-fil-A. My point is that the houses were small. And if you want to have any banquet, a trade guild, um, a birthday party, a wedding, a funeral, where are you going to do that in Corinth? I can tell you where everything was just about done. Where was it? There's one place that has the private rooms that will fit up to 40 people. And you can just rent the room and we'll bring the catered food right to you and we'll offer it to a God for you and it's all in the temple. That's where your Ruth Chris was. That's where your Courtyard Marriott was. That's where you got your banquet. That's where you got the food. Everything was done at the temple. There's a problem. The problem was was the temple was, this was false worship. This was idolatrous worship. We have a little piece of papyrus that was found. And this piece of papyrus that was found says, Antonius, the son of Ptolemais, invites you to dine with him at the table of our Lord Serapis. I'm assuming that's the right word. And the problem was Serapis was the god Serapis, and they were going, invited to a dinner at the temple, to, to, and you were invited for the offering, and everything was done in the name of Serapis, and they would sacrifice this food and they would offer it up to the gods certain portions and then certain portions would be offered up to the meal and there would be sometimes divination. They would, you know, read the liver and try to determine, you know, 
whatever, you know, there's some weird stuff going on. And then the food that didn't get eaten there would be offered in the marketplace, would be sold in the marketplace, and you didn't know when you got to the marketplace where you're getting that food of whether it had already been offered up to an idol or not. And so this was a big issue. And so the Christians had to make a decision. Are we going to huddle together and form our little monastery? Are we going to become vegans? Are we actually going to still try and engage the world for Jesus? Tough issue, is it not? And so for us today, we're caught up in the same struggles to just different it's not offering up to idols it's different thing and we'll get to that in a second but first of all my way of reconciling first corinthians 8 with first corinthians 10 is that paul isn't saying in first corinthians 8 go to the temple what he's saying in first corinthians 8 is don't go to the temple because you'll offend your weak brother in first corinthians 10 he's saying don't go to the temple because they're worshiping demons so he's just given two different arguments for not to go to the temple because they are participating with demons. And so though he's saying, though you have knowledge that this is Zeus or Apollo or Serapis, these different idols that are being worshiped, he's saying they're not anything. There's only one God. And he, and he makes it clear about the knowledge that we have this knowledge, verse, verse uh, five and six, He's saying there's only one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And then Jesus is the instrumental cause of creation, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so Jesus is Lord and God is the Lord. And and we have the God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the Trinity. They're what matters. These other gods are, are nothing as we've already sung about this morning and read about from the Psalms, that the gods, uh, uh, the idols are nothing. However, demonic activity gets tied up in these false gods and in this false worship. And that's what Paul is warning against in chapter 10. And so for us though, as you start to think about Paul's argument, when is it okay to partake of meat? When is it okay to, or when should you refrain from eating meat? What's the difference between the weak and the strong? And some of the difficulty is, is as we wrestle with these issues today, these are what we would call issues of conscience and weak and strong issues. The difficulty is, is that some places, it's very hard to draw the line between what is weak, what is strong, what's a gray area and what's not. Take for example, the Sabbath. You say, well, that's just a matter of conscience. That's weak and strong, brother. Well, is it? Because it's one of the Ten Commandments. So there's a lot of people that are convinced there's still Ten Commandments and not nine. So this is not a weak and strong, brother, issue. This is one of the moral law issues. But you've got other people that are convinced, no, that, that commandment's been fulfilled. So then you have tension about Sabbath convictions and whether it's okay to eat out at a restaurant and whether it's okay to work on the on the Sabbath or play sports on the Sabbath or competitive sports. Those are difficult issues. And then you got issues that like divorce and remarriage, which we talked about the other week. Different people come to different conclusions as to what are biblical grounds for divorce, what are biblical grounds for remarriage. I gave what I'm convinced the scriptures teach a few weeks ago. But where it gets tough today is now we're being called as Christians to be put in some really difficult situations where you're invited to a wedding and it's your extended family member and you don't approve of because it's a wedding where one is apparently a believer and one's apparently an unbeliever and you're asked to come. 
And the scripture says you shouldn't be unequally yoked. And so what do you do? Do I not go or do I go? Or how about this? This has happened with a few people in the church. They've asked me. They're being invited to a wedding of it's a same-sex marriage. And then how do I communicate that I don't approve of their lifestyle choice, but I really love you as a person? Well, how do you live in that world? Well, you're right in Paul's world now. You're right in the issue of these are difficult issues. And how do we love people and love truth? And so, and last but not least, you have this problem of kind of the lowest common denominator. There's always somebody in the church whose conscience is exceedingly weak. It's weak, and if everybody has to live on the lowest common denominator, you can't do anything. Because this weak brother and and the weak and strong brother can both use their views to gain control. And so what was happening, and as he talks about in Romans, is that the, the strong brothers were despising those that didn't like their choices. And the weaker brothers were passing judgment on those that were strong. And so you've got judgmental people and despising people, and now what they're doing is they're not even spending time together. They're pulling apart from each other because like, I don't want to hang out with them because you know, their conscience is weak. I don't want to be with them. I don't want to be with them, man. They're worldly. They just go off and they watch movies and stuff that nobody in the right mind should ever look at. That movie's PG, for crying out loud. <laughs> and so you get the different extremes, but the problem is, and Calvin warned about this uh, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 8, where he talks about people becoming tyrants and giants, the weak brother that now is going to lord it over everybody, where they're going to become the lord of everybody's conscience in the whole church. We get to decide for everybody, and they start making up things that the Bible never says, like cleanliness is next to godliness, and they start saying, well, any good Christian would never do this, and then they start pumping these things out, and so the problem is, is that we live in a world where we are, what Paul is trying to guard against is you want to be in the world but not of the world. And so how do we not fall off on the one end into legalism and the other end towards licentiousness or the one end where we're pulling away like monastery from society and the other end where we're syncretized and we're just in sync with society. Those are the extremes. And so people's consciences can start to get offended with these weak brothers that and they start coming up with stuff like your child should never eat any junk food and you should never eat any junk food and how do you determine what's junk food or not and your child can never have a phone and if you're on Instagram or you play Fortnite or you play poker or you go to a pool hall or you drink beer or you have cable TV or you have Netflix, well, I despise you and I don't want to be around you. And see, the problem is, is, is that if you go to the lowest common denominator, guess where you end up? Because there are people that do this perfectly all around here. They do it perfectly. They're at the local cemetery. They don't watch Netflix. They don't have Hulu. They don't have cable TV. They never go to the movies. They never see anything. And they do it perfectly. The problem is they're, they're not alive. So you got to work this thing through, okay? And so what, what Paul is saying is these idols, they're not real. Apollo, he's not real. Zeus, not real. There's one God, one Lord. But 
if your conscience, if, if somebody is newer to the faith and their associations are with that whole scene of where they've been saved out of that whole temple scene. And we know in that temple scene there was also temple prostitution in other rooms. There were other stuff that was going on. And people that have been saved from that temple environment, and now they're just, they want nothing to do with it. And so now you go to the market, and they don't want to be eating food that was sacrificed to an idol because they know that there was demonic activity going on. And so they want to know when they get to the temple and they, or they get out in the marketplace and they buy that meat, was this offered to an idol or not? And if they find out and they bring it home, and they bring it home for, for dinner, or, or they ask you when you invite them over, and they want to know, well, was that food offered to an idol? And see, what Paul's saying is, just don't ask questions about it. Better for you not to know, because this stuff's not real. But, but if your brother with a weak conscience is really wanting to know, and he finds out it was offered to an idol, out of love for your brother, let Christian freedom be constrained by love. And so if you can tell your brother's going to stumble over this, well, then pull back. And so when we're young in Christ, particularly as new believers, you know, I remember when I first became a Christian, I had to quit playing softball. Now, is there anything wrong with playing softball? I mean, it was good, competitive softball. This was one of my bosses, wanted me on his team. Me and another guy, we got to play with the, and all the guys were older. And it was great, great competition. But the problem was, after the, we, after the games, we would sit around and drink beer. Well, the problem was, I was 17 years old. And I was drinking beer, and that's what I'd just gotten saved from. And they're saying, hey, it's okay. And I'm trying to witness to these guys. They're offering me a beer. And then I would drink one or two. And then I would feel horrible afterwards. I'm trying to be a witness to these guys. And yet I can't even say no to uh, alcohol. So for me, at that young, tender stage of only being a Christian for a few months, I just said the best thing for me to do is no softball. Now, should I then say to everybody on the planet that plays church or plays softball, that you should not play softball because that's associated with beer drinking. You should never do it. But for me, it was. Let me give you another example. When Rosario Butterfield, some of you have read some of her books, she was a lady that was in a, she was a lesbian. And she talks about Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It's a great book where she's in a lesbian relationship and she's writing against Christians and promise keepers. She's a tenured professor at Syracuse University and yet she received a letter from a pastor in town and she was getting all these letters and she had two baskets, one for all the, the hate mail and one for all the people that commended her work and then she got this letter from the pastor and she couldn't put it in either pile because he wasn't hating her and, it, and but she was, he wasn't, uh, endorsing her, her views either. He lovingly asked questions and actually suggested that they get together and talk. And she thought, well, this is good for research. I'm needing to write this book. And so she reached out to this pastor and the pastor had her over for supper. So when the pastor had her over for supper, knowing that the world that she lives in, where she was coming from, was she lived simply and that it would be offensive to have the air conditioning on, and it would be offensive to serve meat. And so no air conditioning and a, and a vegan meal. And Rosario was touched by that 
because the pastor was becoming all things to all people in order to win some. His love reigned over his knowledge of personal freedoms and he could have used his knowledge to talk about his freedoms that it's okay to turn on the air conditioner, it's okay to eat meat and he could have pounded it over her. But no, out of love to build up and to edify and she's now in the kingdom and a pastor's wife by the way that she came to the Lord through this process. So the problem here that Paul's dealing with is a matter of the heart and both the strong brother and the weak brother, we talked briefly about this, they can use their convictions as leverage, as a badge to badger others, to become like them, to have everybody else conform to your conscience's standard. So the strong can use their knowledge and boldly proclaim their freedoms and in, their, in, and in your face they can flaunt their freedoms and puff their cigars in your face and drink their hard liquor and let you know about their freedoms in Jesus. And I've been around many of those people before. And Spurgeon, interestingly, uh, used to boldly proclaim his, his freedom to smoke cigars. And when Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody, came to the pulpit, he gave Spurgeon a hard time and chastised him from the pulpit in front of all the people in the church. And Spurgeon returned the favor and instantly came down on him for his weight. And Moody was a bit overweight. But he reminded him, God's only given us 10 commandments and 10 commandments no more. And I'm gonna go home tonight and smoke a cigar to the glory of God. Well, then another time he, was, he said he would stop smoking cigars if it became a problem. And so the question was, well, how would you know if it becomes a problem? And Spurgeon said, well, if I start smoking two at a time. <laughs> well, well, Spurgeon stopped smoking cigars. You know why? The reason he gave up cigar smoking was when he got to the cigar shop in town one day and he saw the big advertisement that says, we sell the cigar that Spurgeon smokes. And Spurgeon realized at that point that his freedoms were now being used as a soliciting for unbelievers that here this great prominent preacher was a cigar smoker and he didn't want to be known for that. And so he gave up his cigar smoking because he wanted to know people about the freedom that comes from being released from the bondage of sin through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so, brothers and sisters, for us, where do you draw the line is, is more about in this text, he's, he's, he's calling out the strong and he's telling them, watch out for your weaker brother. And if this particular movie, this particular TV show, listening to that particular song, particular radio station, the genre of music, although it may not bring you into a snare, what Paul is saying is that love is the determining factor, not your knowledge that it's okay for you. If it's okay for them, let love reign. If it's not okay for them, then let love reign in your freedoms. I mean, you can think about this like a C-sharp minor is a C-sharp minor is a C-sharp minor, whether it's in classical music, contemporary music, country music, rock music, or Christian hip-hop. It's a C-sharp minor when played as a C-sharp minor. But if your associations, if you have been saved out of a bad culture of rock music, and that rock music is a stumbling block to you, and there are certain stations on the dial, and there are certain songs that I have to just say, I can't listen to that. You know, there's some songs where it's like ACDC starts rocking out, and I like rock music, but there's some of the songs that are like, uh, that's not good. We're, we're, we're going away from that. Now, for others, they say, man, I can't listen to that at all. I mean, I think most Christians kind of went through the stage where like, 
you get rid of all your music, like everything. Like, you know, you're new in Christ, everything bothers you. I got rid of all my music. It actually got stolen out of my car, which <laughs> the Lord saved me from. from. And, then, and then years later, you kind of regret, man, I wish I still had some of those because they were actually pretty good. But the, the, the issue here is when it's bringing your brother or sister down, we have to watch out for that. Now, I'll give you an example of this idea of what Calvin called the tough giants who want to play the tyrant and put our freedom under their control. When I was in Greenville, South Carolina, I became friends with a missionary, and this missionary had had been in Egypt, and we did a perspectives missions class together at our church, so we kind of labored together and worked with the other churches, and some of you have taken that perspectives uh, missions class, and uh, he was aligned with a Bob Jones University church and basically tied in with a whole denomination. They're pretty legalistic and um, they made their missionaries and pastors and, and probably even the church members too, they had to sign a list every year, particularly if you were in the ministry and on the mission field, that, and the thing was, I will not drink alcohol. I will not go to the movie theater. You know, I will not watch R-rated movies. I will not smoke. I will not play cards. This is, this is on there. I will not play cards, and I will not have fellowship with Pentecostals or Charismatics. And so here they are, in Eng- and now they're in Egypt. This is a true story. And so the first year, this thing came to them, and they, they signed it, but they said, what about Rook? Question mark. Rook's a card game. You know, what about Rook? Well, the next year, that thing came back to them, and by this time, in Egypt, you're happy to hug any Christian you can find. And they had fellowship with Charismatics and Pentecostals, and they were happy to have them. And so the second year this thing came around, and they had to sign it. And they, in good conscience, said, you know what? We can't sign this thing. And they sent it back to the mission agency and didn't sign it. Well, news hit the street fast. And the denomination quickly sent a note out to all the other churches to stop their support because the Butchrams play cards and have fellowship with charismatics, you know? And aren't there great biblical verses on that? Well, I said to him, wow. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, we lost 85% of our support. And I said, wow. I said, I I guess you would have had to have gone, gone home from the field. He said, well, we would have liked to, but we didn't have any money. (laughs) They're stuck in Egypt because they played cards and had fellowship with Charismatics and Pentecostals. Do you see what I'm getting at with the tough giants? Be careful in holding your convictions and not lording them over somebody else because they're over here stuck now in Egypt, and it took them months to get back to the States. And when they got back to the States into Greenville, they had to start a whole new network They had to find a new church home and all new churches to support them. Had to start completely over from ground zero because in in what happens in these churches, and this is still a principle today, it's called secondary separation. Have you ever heard of it? It works like this. Secondary association is I don't associate with you because you associate with them. You support Billy Graham? We don't support you because you support Billy Graham and by secondary separation, we must remove ourselves from you. So if if you supported the Buttrams who played cards and had fellowship with Charismatics and Pentecostals, we don't have fellowship with you. So now we rule that church out. 
and we won't give to that church and we won't help you because you're doing bad stuff over there. That's how legalism blossoms in the church. It's a Christian killer and that is bad stuff. So, where does this work itself out for us? Well, let me just remind us of how the chapter ends here is that he's warning about the strong brother taking advantage of his weak brother, going into the temple though and flaunting his freedoms. And I think just as much as we have the problem of the weak brother and the weak brother wanting to lord his conscience over everybody, we have a lot of strong brothers now that say you just need to get on board and this is what we do. And you're gonna come with us to this movie. And what's your problem? There's only one sex scene in it. I mean, it's okay, you just need to come along. You know, you're only gonna regret this every time you think about it for the rest of your life, but just come along and, and we'll be a part of this. And so what's happening is people are being drugged down by other people's so-called strong consciences. And so what I think we need to remember as we come to the Lord's table this morning is this, is um, I had our staff watch um, this week, we watched Tim Keller's um, talk that he gave at the British Parliament. And I've watched it twice. I would encourage you to watch it. I didn't realize, he was a little nervous when we watched this. So he speaks at the prayer breakfast at British Parliament. Anybody seen this video? It's less than 30 minutes and it was earlier this summer. And I didn't realize till after I've watched this twice that the Prime Minister of England is in attendance. And I think that's maybe why he was a little nervous. But, um, but he gives this very powerful address of how should Christians be treated and how should Christians live. And he talks about how Christians are to be salt. And the very idea of salt being a preserver is it has to be different than the world or it's no longer salt. If salt loses its saltiness, it loses its, you have to be different. And so what he was saying is let Christians be different. It was a veiled way of saying, give them their freedoms and don't hinder their freedoms. And so he's saying, but Christians have to be salt. And, and then he talks about the, value, the two values of the world today that are competing. We're a Christian world system versus the world system. And he does it much more uh, respectfully than, than just laying those two out there. But he talks about how most of the world is living for self-actualization. And self-actualization is, is basically be all that you can be. It's all about you and your choices and your freedoms and make it happen for yourself because it's all about self-actualization. And he, he talks about how that's just in contrast to the Christian community. And he talked about the Amish community that forgave the shooter back in 2005 in that Amish community where those girls were shot and how the, the Amish community came around the, the wife who, whose husband did this and they, and they came to the funeral and they shielded her and the family from the press. It was amazing. And they forgave, and how that is self-renunciation. And Christians renunciate the want to retaliate. That's totally, un, that's not in vogue. That's, that's not self-actualization, that's self-renunciation. How these values are going in two different directions. So my question this morning is, who are you following? Are you following the world that's all about your freedoms and yourself? And I think part of the reason we have such a struggle to get teachers right now in the church is because 
you're giving up freedom. If you want to commit to teaching in our church, it's going to, forget freedom for a while. You're going to be lined up most weeks. And that's different than the world system. The, the following Christ, though, is Christ gave up his rights. He gave up his glory. He took humanity for, to himself forever. He became a fetus. He lived here without a place to lay his head. He went to the cross. He gave up his life, his blood, and he prayed for forgiveness of those who were crucifying. That's all self-renunciation. And so as we follow our leader who laid aside his glory and his rights and was crucified on a cross, we lay down our rights and our personal privileges and our freedoms that we think we can, we can just take advantage of, but no, out of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't put up any stumbling blocks because that would not only be sinning against our brother, but a sin against Christ himself. And so as we come to the table, let's remember who we follow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we praise you for all that you have done for us and this privilege to come to your table, not because we deserve it or that we've worked for it, but that you have done everything for us in laying down your life for our sins. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.